It'd be great if you did have open in front of you now that passage uh, which we read earlier. So it's Romans 6 on page 1133. Let's pray. Lord, when Jesus was among us, he he promised at one point a a winsome promise that that all of us would long to, to know and receive. He promised life to the full. And Lord, we we gather here a community of people who, if we're entirely honest, often uh, feel like we we live anything but life to the full. Lord, we we believe your promises. Uh, We believe that you want to give us a good and a full and a rich life. Come and speak to us this evening. Show us more of who you are and who you're calling us to be. That we might live for your glory and that we might know the life that Jesus promised. Amen. In my late teens and early 20s, I did a number of short-term missions, some of them at home in Ireland and others further afield in different parts of Europe. During that time, as I was preparing myself for those, those mission experiences, I suppose there was a, a, a thing that I came across in, in various places, and that was different schemes or outlines of how you might talk to someone. Um, So if you're a Christian wanting to share your faith with someone, uh, you could use this particular scheme or or that particular outline. Um, They're they're quite popular uh, in in some evangelistic literature and and training literature. One of the ones that I came across was called the Roman Road. Uh, And I'm telling you that this evening because I've been stressing myself when I've been preaching in this series and also encouraging the other preachers to to make sure that we're always keeping the whole of Paul's argument before us. That as we preach our way through Romans, we don't want a series of uh, random, unconnected sermons, but we want to try and and always have a sense of where we are uh, with the big picture and Paul's argument. So by way of recap this evening, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the Romans road, the steps along that road that we have covered so far. The first verse that they would flag up in this outline is is one that you'll know well. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know because we studied uh, right through the first three chapters that actually that's not a bad summary of, of the first three chapters of Romans. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're religious or entirely pagan, all have sinned was Paul's argument. We've all done things that displease God, and there's no one, not a single one, who's innocent. If you had this Romans road outline printed in front of you, you'd see that the second verse that's flagged up is Romans 6.23. That's going to be the final verse of our reading uh, this evening. Teaches about the consequences then of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. 
The punishment that this sin, this universal sin, brings on all people is death. Not just physical, but eternal death. For the third verse on the Romans road, we jump backwards. We follow on in the same train of thought from Romans 6.23. Because Romans 6.23 tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And in Romans 5.8, we're told how that is possible. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, I hope nothing that we've said there so far is massively surprising to you. Although there's a lot more that Paul has said in these first five and a half chapters, and there's a lot more that we could say even in recapping, that's not a bad summary of of how far we've come in Romans up to this point. Last week, Dave brought us through the first half of chapter 6. And he reminded us of a, a, a dynamic that Paul describes there, how a Christian has died with Christ to sin and has been raised with Christ to an entirely different life. He says, count yourselves then dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Paul does a thing where he, first of all, tells us what's theologically true and then asks us to live in the light of it. He says you're dead to sin and you're alive in Christ. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. We're going to see a similar pattern in this, in this second half of the chapter this evening. Before we get stuck into the second half of the chapter, I think I need to tell you how I'm going to, to deal with this passage this evening. I want you to imagine for a moment you're, you're going to buy a new house. Um, so you've been looking on the internet, you found the house in the area that you think you're interested in, you contact the estate agent and you go for a viewing. So the estate agent does what they would normally do, they show you around every room of the house and, and you get a good look round. You, you get to see it in its location Uh, You get to see the place in its entirety. After a few days of of thinking about it, you realize, goodness, this I'm serious about this house. This could be the one. So you you contact the estate agent uh, and you set up a second viewing. And this time you're going back, not, not so much for that initial overview, you're going back for a more detailed look at a couple of particular aspects of the house that you have questions about. Folks, that's the kind of approach we're going to take with the passage this evening. Um, I want you to think of this evening's passage as the house. I'll play the role of the estate agent, and you will come on two viewings. The first one will be quite quick, get a bit of a look around, see what's going on in general, and then we'll spend uh, just the last few minutes together bedding down a little bit and thinking about uh, one, one particular aspect of what Paul's been saying. Let's begin then in verse 15, the opening verse of our passage. If you, you look at verse 15 and at the same time look at verse 1 of the chapter, you'll see that they're very similar. In a sense, Paul's going to cover similar ground in the second half of the chapter, but using a different set of images. Last week, 
we noticed his question, shall we go on sinning so that grace may be increased? Paul says, no way. Any person who's in Christ is dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. We don't accommodate sin in our lives. We seek to eradicate it and live by God's new agenda. This evening, the question's almost the same. Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And again, the answer is the same. No way. But this time, it's a a different set of images. In verse 16, Paul introduces us to an idea that's going to dominate uh, this entire part of his argument. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey them as slaves, you are slaves to that person, that one whom you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Listen, guys, don't you realize we always become slaves of the person or the thing to which we offer our allegiance? We'll come back to that, that crucial point on our second more detailed look at the passage. In verses 17 to 18, Paul tells these guys of a a switch that they have already made. They've already switched allegiance. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin, and you've become slaves to righteousness. If you're familiar with the history of popular music in the, the last decade of the 20th century, you'll remember the time when Prince, the multi-platinum selling artist, fell out with his record company, Warner Brothers. He, he's quite a weird guy, so he protested in some quite strange ways. He changed his name um, to, to an unpronounceable symbol, so you couldn't say his name for a while. He, he had to be called the artist formerly known as Prince because nobody knew what the, the symbol that he'd come up with meant. In the end, he rushed out a number of really quite rubbish albums to try and fulfill his contractual obligations to Warner Brothers. All of this he did to escape his old employer because he'd come to realize how much they had stifled his freedom and how much he wanted to move on to a new way. That, says Paul, is what's happened to the new Christians in Rome. They were once slaves in the employ of sin, but now they've been set free from sin and they've come in the employ of a new master, righteousness. In verse 19, Paul uses a technique that characterizes much of his argument, not only in Romans, but in in a lot of his letters. He moves from the indicative to the imperative. And let me explain what that means. I'm rubbish at grammar and so on, so I'm not trying to dazzle you, but it's important to to understand how Paul works because he does this a lot. Whenever he's speaking in the indicative mood, he's explaining how things are. So he's given an indication of the reality that he sees. So if you look there at verses 17 and 18, he's speaking in the indicative He's explaining the spiritual reality that those who are in Christ have been set free from their slavery to sin. And they have already a new allegiance to righteousness. So that's in the indicative. Paul's looking at at the theology of the situation of what Jesus Christ has done 
And he's letting the Romans know what he sees. But now in verse 19, he changes, he flips into the imperative. And he starts telling the believers in Rome that in light of the indicative, in light of what he sees that's true, there's something they must do. So it's a different kind of communication. He says, God in his grace has set you free from your slavery to sin. He's given you a new apprenticeship to righteousness. And now he says, Paul says, there's something you need to do. You need to play your part. You need to offer your body to cooperate with the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. In verses 20 to 22, Paul Paul tries to motivate his, his readers to take that step. And the way he does that is by asking them to consider the outcomes of two ways of life. Their life before Christ, when they were slaves to sin, and their life in Christ now. He says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Paul's reminding them that slavery to sin outside of the grace and the mercy that they found in Jesus is a way to death. And in stark contrast, verse 22, but now you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. I don't know if you picked up as we were reading from the message, if you were able to to follow, but verse 23, that very famous uh, Romans 6.23, it's wonderfully uh, written by Peterson, but I've paraphrased it again in in a different way. If you work for sin, sin's personified here now as an employer. If you work for sin, he will pay you the wages you deserve, namely death. In contrast, if you open your life to God, he will not pay you, but he will give you what you don't deserve, namely life in Jesus Christ. Folks, we've been through the house once, We've had a look round, and we've seen what Paul's talking about here. As we go for a second look round the house, I, I want to, to try and bring what we're learning in our morning services and what we're learning here in our evening services together for, for a moment. We learned this morning the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth below or in the waters beneath. As I read the second half of Romans 6, I I couldn't help but see that Romans 6 is a clarion call to give up our allegiance to our idols, those that are leading us to death, and instead to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to Jesus, the only one who gives life. 
So the issue we're talking about here, whether it's framed in Exodus 20 language, about making idols for ourselves, or in Romans 6 language, about offering ourselves as slaves to sin, either way, it's a huge issue. It's about the allegiances that we take on in our lives. I don't think we think enough about idolatry, folks. I don't think we think carefully enough about what it is. And I don't think we think enough about what it does to us. I'm not sure we even realize how important it is. The reason I think we need to be more savvy about idolatry is because of the disastrous effects that it has on the whole of human life. When a person begins to worship something other than the creator God, then that idol begins to exert a power over us. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? The idols we worship have power over us. It begins with us choosing them, but it always ends with them controlling us. Of course, we don't really believe that. We tend to think of ourselves as free, always free. We're free to make our own choices. The mantra of our era was captured so well in that 1990s classic by the Soup Dragons. You all know the one I mean. I'm free to do what I want any old time. That was a song rotating on the dance floors around 1990, the Manchester scene. But that's our culture in a nutshell. We believe that we're free. Paul says... We're never free when we enslave ourselves to idols. And he's right. Ask the guy who imagined that a wee glance at the internet, a wee glance at internet pornography might momentarily lift him out of the the boredom that he was experiencing in that moment. Now he's enslaved to a habit that's ruining his marriage and that fills him with self-loathing. Where's the freedom in that? Ask the girl who went looking for liberation in the high street. She's become so addicted to the retail therapy that she's got unmanageable credit card bills, and she can hardly face life without going back onto the high street with her card. Ask the guy who thought one more drink was the way to relax and get the stresses of work and family life behind him. He now has an addiction that's robbed him of everything that he has. The Bible teaches that idols do the exact opposite of what they promise. They promise freedom and they take our freedom away. They enslave us. I wonder if we started to believe the Bible yet. Idols enslave us, and that's a huge problem with idolatry, but it's actually only the beginning. 
It, it gets much worse. Idols can't ever pro- deliver what they promise. That's just what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 115. We read the verses in their service this morning. It says there, Idols of silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but they can't see, ears but they can't hear, noses but they can't smell. They have hands but they cannot feel, feet but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. They can't deliver anything. But most chilling of all, the psalmist goes on to tell us, those who make them will be like them, and so will all those who trust in them. Friends, it's an irrefutable law of human nature that we become like the things that we worship. If we worship idols, we become like them. God's Word tells us that we're made in His image. We're made to worship Him. That is, God revealed in Jesus Christ, made real to us by His Spirit. If we worship Him, we will grow to resemble Him. We really, really will. It's one of the exciting truths at the heart of of life with God. You may not notice it. If you've been walking with Jesus Christ, if you've been giving yourself to him, if you've been open to his spirit, you are becoming like Jesus. You probably don't notice it, but other people do. I do. Can I tell you very quickly of three conversations I've had in the last 10 days? Claire was out of the coffee morning um, that a a woman in in our neighborhood had put on. And she met there uh, a woman in her late 40s, probably, who lives in our neighborhood. And when she discovered that Claire was my wife and therefore involved with this church, she said, I've heard so much from so many different people about your church. I, I don't go to church, but I'm so intrigued that I want to come. That's just ordinary Christian people living for Jesus in their community. That's what that does. I had another conversation this week where somebody was telling me about a conversation in Piggly Wiggly's cafe across the road. A member of our congregation, I don't know who it is, went in there, and they must have been in early in the morning, so they helped the staff put out some chairs. And the staff turned to this person and said, are you from that church across the road? And the guy said, yes, actually I am. And they said, oh, it's just, there's another bunch of people who come in here and have coffee here in the mornings, and they help us put out the chairs, and they're from that church across the road. And the third interaction that I've had this week I have an email here from Terence Nickel. He's the, the brother of Tara Nickel. You'll remember Tara tragically died earlier in January. And we had a funeral service for her here. Terence is a young fellow who lives in Hitchin in North London. Hasn't been going to church anywhere, but um, came into the church community. Let me read a couple of paragraphs. Christoph, it was great to meet with you and the wonderful church community of Kirkpatrick Memorial. I was both touched and comforted by it. 
I'm pleased to say I'm back in Belfast on the weekend of the 24th of February and look forward to coming to Sunday worship. I went to Christ Church today for my first service. This is a place I found on the internet and told him he, he could maybe try to go to. It was a really nice service. In fact, we sang a hymn that we sung in your service for the first time ever in Christ Church about Jesus and the cross. It made me smile. I met a few, a few of the guys down there who were all very friendly and I've already inquired about helping out as well as registering my interest in attending an Alpha course. Thank you for all your love, help and support over this difficult time. Please extend this to David, Steve and to the rest of the guys. I was telling the guys in the staff meeting on Tuesday, what we did for these guys was things like opening the church up at unsociable hours to make sure that a florist could get in to put in stuff for the funeral. The ladies in the church here helped us to put on a, a reception in the hall so that the, the family and, and friends of the bereaved folks, it, it wasn't anything special. But when we, when we worship the true and living God and make honoring him in simple and honest ways, when we make that the goal of our lives, people notice We become like him, and others see it and start to give glory to him. What happens when we worship things that aren't God? Bishop Tom Wright, he suggests that whenever we worship money, power, sex, security, prosperity, political advance, it most likely begins to show on our face sooner or later. I thought that was very interesting. He says you can see what a person worships in their demeanor. And I think he's right. It's as real as that. It becomes a part of us. The bottom line is that if we worship anything other than God, who is the creator and the giver of life, then we're, we're going to become like the thing that we worship. We're going to be drawn into death and decay. Look at verse 21. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Worshipping anything other than Jesus leads to death and decay in this life and the next. Folks, I'm finished for this evening. For me, anyway, I don't know if you've seen the connection. Today has, has all hinged on this question of having the right allegiances. This morning we were thinking of worshipping the true and living God rather than idols. This evening we've been thinking about working for the right boss, leaving slavery, coming into the employ of our gracious God in Jesus Christ. Over the last years I've been astonished by the success of the TV series The Apprentice. And, and very, there's a simple dynamic that makes the whole thing work. These guys are desperate to work for the right boss. 
There's only one boss worth working for. There's only one person we can trust not to take advantage of us, not to enslave us. There's only one who frees us to become like him, strong and kind, full of grace and truth. His name is Jesus. And the great news is that he is an advert in the situations vacant, apprentices wanted. And the good news is there aren't any qualifications. He takes all comers, all who'll come, and he says to them, come and follow me. I'll give you life, and I'll teach you how to live it. Come, follow me. Come on. What's keeping us? Let's go. Father God, we need you to to scrape and to scratch the dirt off the lens of our of our hearts help us to see with crystal clear vision how all other roads all other commitments all other idolatries lead only to death only jesus gives life only as we, we honor him and love him and follow him and become like him will the life well up in us. Lord, free us. Free us as Paul says you can. Free us from all our slaveries and all our idolatries. Bring us now into your, your family. Make us apprentices of Jesus, disciples of his, looking to him and walking with him every day of our lives. Lord, thank you for this huge offer of grace. Help us now to receive it. Amen.